Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're at. Ecclesiastes 3, find your place. When you find it, go ahead and stay in tonight. We'll jump right in this evening. And we'll just pick up right where we left off last week. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Just going to read one verse tonight. What I'd like to do, we we read uh, verses 1 through 10 last week. And so we're going to pick up our reading in verse 11. We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 4 tonight. And so uh, uh, we'll just read verse 11 while we're standing. And that will be our focus tonight. And then uh, we will look at some more verses here in just a few moments. All right, so verse 11, Solomon writing, says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight and the chance to be together. Please speak to us once more today. You already have today, Lord, and we're grateful. And we ask once more that you would instruct our hearts and that we be better helped as a result of your word. And, uh, and uh, Lord, the, the, the Holy Spirit of you that would speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Josh, give me a little more. It's, it's really quiet up here. We help. Okay. Last week we said this, that time is our most valuable asset, uh, that time is what's happening right now, this moment, today, this week, and month. And in verse 1, Solomon said to everything, there's a season and a time. And so he makes this distinction between these two things, that seasons perhaps are a period of time, and they might, for our purposes and our understanding of God's Word, and the way the Lord works, they might compromise a few months, maybe years, it'd be a season of life. And what takes place during our moments of time depends on how that season of our life will go. Your ma- moments matter so much, and if you don't use your time wisely and with the right perspective, then we waste seasons of life, and we're going to miss blessings that God has for us. And our time is going to end. Uh, and a little bit of a morbid thought, but one God's Word invites us to consider that our time's going to run out, and we need to use it wisely. So that's our time. But there's another perspective that Solomon gives us simply tonight in verse 11, and that is God's time, in His time. And that's a different time. It's hard to imagine what things were like before time. Uh, It's hard to imagine the idea that time was created. Our, Our lives are so woven in terms of timeline. It's hard to imagine what things will be like when time is over. And, you know, we sing songs about thousands of years from now and 10,000 years and those types of things. And it's like those were just getting started. And we look at that and go, well, how can that be? And it, it breaks our minds and it befuddles us. The construct of time we are so limited to. But just because our finite minds cannot grasp this reality doesn't make it any less true. God created time. He, he created a beginning and he creates an end, and that breaks my brain, but it's reality, and we'll experience that one day. And because God created time, he is exclusively in control of time. And, and the verse specifically tonight says, in his time. And like a conductor, he is orchestrating the events of time. And what we want to predict when time's going to end, we want to predict the end Uh, times and all these things and people have had ideas for thousands of years and and the truth is this tonight it's his time and he's orchestrating it and he's conducting it in the beginning of time God created a man Adam and his wife Eve and of course they sinned and they they brought the curse of sin on us all and ever since that moment in time God 
began in his heart to devise a plan that throughout the course of time he would redeem man. And he didn't do it all at once. In fact, he's drawing this out and it's not completely over yet. And he devised a plan for redemption and he slowly began to execute it over thousands of years. And he, he chose a man named Abraham. And through him he started a nation. And with Abraham he gave a covenant to him. And that through him, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham didn't fully understand that at his time. But in our time, we look back and go, well, we get that. It came through Jesus Christ. He came through Abraham. And all nations of the earth are blessed and one day will be blessed. And then he worked through that nation. And under them, he gave the law to a man named Moses. And after thousands of years, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was prophesied in Genesis and all the way through to the New Testament, was born. But he wasn't just born arbitrarily. He came at the right time to fulfill the law that God had gave at the time that God gave it. And so in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, we see, we read, but when the fullness of the time was come, this is God's time, God sent forth his woman, uh, his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And, and, and the Lord, in the beginning of, of this with Adam and Eve, he, he picked this time. And he's conducting it like an orchestra. He says, okay, this is the time. And so the fullness of time came, and he gave to us the birth of Jesus Christ. And he inserted him onto the timeline. And throughout his life, as Jesus lived, he was in control in the, of the timing of events in a way no other human being has ever been because he was God. There's this fascinating story in John chapter 7. And let me read these verses. Do we have those on the screen, Andrew? Okay, throw those up there. If you want to follow along, you can do that or just listen real closely. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. He himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. They're baiting Jesus. So we understand this. They're saying, hey, if you're really who you say you are, prove it. Like, like show it to us. And Jesus in control, he says, I don't need your approval. I'm going to do things on my time schedule. And the Bible makes us clear to us. And Jesus said unto them, not yet, my time is not yet come. God said, I want to insert you on the timeline here and the whole time of Jesus' life. He was in control of every moment of time. Jesus always did the right thing, and he always did it at the right time. He was especially close to three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In John 11, we read that Lazarus died. You know the story. He dies. Mary and Martha feel like, hey, we're pretty close to Jesus. We have a little bit of an exclusive relationship with him. Our brother is sick. We need to send for Jesus. Jesus gets the message and says, I'm not coming yet. And he waits. And four days go by. And then he comes. And on two separate interactions, one he had with Mary, one he had with Martha, they both say the same exact thing in the New Testament. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. What are they saying? You're late. You got the message. You could have showed up. You could have healed him. You could have taken care of this problem. And he wasn't late. And the Bible makes it clear. He was right on time. He's the God of time. And he had a special plan for Lazarus. 
He had a special plan for Lazarus' testimony. And the disciples all had to learn consistently that God has his timing in our lives. In fact, it was through Lazarus that his ministry would change and the turning point of his ministry began and his eyes were set towards the cross. And so then at the perfect moment in time, God sent his son to die and Jesus himself was in control of his death and the timing of his death and the day of his death and the hour of his death. And in Romans 5, 6, we read this in due time, right at the perfect moment in time, Christ died. He gave up the ghost for the ungodly. And in the right time, he came up out of the grave and he rose again. His time had not yet come. And then it had come. What's the point? Well, the point is simply this. God is sovereign and he created time. And he's in control of time. He controlled the birth, the works, the death, the resurrection of, of his son. He is in control of circumstances, but not just circumstances in our lives. He is in control of time itself. When circumstances take place, when things happen in your life. And no matter how hard you try, you will never, ever, ever begin to understand why he does what he does when he does it. And we struggle with this. There are so many things we want to know. And this was one of Solomon's big quests. He wanted to understand. He wanted to know God's timing. And, and we're going to get to these verses in just a minute. These things perplexed him. Sometimes we want to know because we're curious. Other times we're hurt. We're frustrated. We're anxious. We want to know the next step. We want to know, hey, I've got to make some decisions here, God. And I need to know the future. And you need to show me. And God says, no, no, no. I'm in control of time and I'm in control of the timeline of your life and of your day and what's going on in your world. The disciples spent their entire ministry with Jesus wanting him to establish an earthly kingdom. So many people followed him because that was the purpose that they understood he came to do. He, they witnessed his works. They knew he could do it. They watched him heal people. They watched him feed them out of nothing. They're thinking, we could go into battle. We won't starve. And if we get hurt, he'll just heal us. And we'll keep fighting, right? They were thinking, he is going to establish this earthly kingdom. He has these powers. He's going to be the king. He's the son of God. Here we go. And they're just waiting for the moment in time when he would do that. And he spent years trying to help them understand, I didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. That is coming in my time. But right now I've come to establish a kingdom of heaven on earth. That's what this time is about. And they were frustrated. They couldn't conceive why he didn't act with more aggression, why he didn't get things underway, why he didn't assert his dominance and his authority and his power that they knew he had. Even after his death and his resurrection, they had the expectation that his earthly kingdom would come and soon be established. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we read these words. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, now that Jesus risen from the dead, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Like now's the time, right? You rose from the dead and this is the moment. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. They would say, well, we're trying to plan our life. 
We're, we're trying to establish what our future ministries look like and our role in your kingdom. And the Lord says to them, not your business. Like, you follow me. You trust me. You let me guide you. And in due time, I'll show you what to do. And I will guide your life. There is a compulsive drive within us to have answers. We want to know the character, the composition, and the meaning of the world. We want to discern purpose and destiny. And this was Solomon's big striving. But this is what he came to at the second part of verse 11. And he says this, no man can find out the work that God taketh from the beginning to the end. You're not going to understand it. You could try to wrap your mind around it. He says, I'm the wisest man ever lived. God made me that way. And I can't get my mind wrapped around this. God has a complete view of life. And our view is incomplete. We have to learn to embrace the mysteriousness Amen. and the beauty in that mysteriousness of God. We have to learn to embrace His sovereignty in our life. We have to learn to have faith and trust in Him. That the answers we don't have today, we will one day have. But we do not get to know everything. So what are we to do? Well, I, I want to highlight a few thoughts from the text tonight. And so I want to look at verse 9. Solomon asks this question. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? He says, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He says, I've seen the hard work that people have to do. The burden of labor is common to us all. It was part of the, the curse of sin. It is what Adam had to do to labor and to work hard. And the challenge from the text is simply this. We are to find purpose in the work we do because God is working in and through our work. He, he created us for this purpose. It is part of our life. And I am not talking about your eight to five job that you get a salary for. That's part of it. But it's only a part of it. He's talking about all your labor, the kind you never retire from. Amen. It's the labor in the kitchen, preparing food and cleaning up. It's the labor to maintain your home and to maintain your body. The labor to sharpen your mind. The, the, the work and the labor in your relationships that you should be giving yourself to. The labor to better the world and their community and our homes and our, and our neighborhoods. The labor to invest in people. The labor for the kingdom of God. We are to see work as a way to serve God, and he says there's purpose to it. Why? Because it is through our labor and all that we do that God is working through it. His purposes, his plan, and his time. Don't resent work. Don't resent labor. We, yes, we need pause and rest, and we could, we could talk about that too. But we also need to know that our lives are to consist of labor and work and that we are to find God in that and not resent it and not hate it and not have a bad attitude about our work. Yes, it's travail, but find the purpose and find the beauty in it. God's in control. And even if it's not beautiful to you now, that beauty's coming. And we are to find purpose in it. And then in verse 12, he says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice... And to do good in his life 
and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. He's saying work hard and give it your best. And then in the right moments, rest and enjoy the labor and the fruits of the labor. God wants you to enjoy a, a life that is hardworking and then pausing for rest. And a proper view of God allows us to discover real pleasure in his gifts and not in what we accumulate. There is beauty all around us when we look for it. God doesn't just make things beautiful in heaven. He makes them beautiful here too. I, I think tonight as I look at my family, um, I, I, I feel blessed beyond measure. I, I think my wife is beautiful. I think my daughters and are beautiful. Like my sons aren't too bad. Um, yeah, look around this room. The face is here. Choir tonight. Scott singing. There's beautiful faces in this place. There's beauty in the outdoors. Uh, there's beauty in technology, and music, and and God does make things beautiful in this life. Yes, it's a sin cursed world. But he didn't leave it without the shadow of his beauty. Like he, he created these things and sins ruined so much, but they but he still has left his prints all over this world. It's not always the way we want or expect, but he is working. And those who know the Lord can testify that in him and in his presence and in his person, they have found more than they ever expected or wanted. There's a beauty in the Lord. The more we get to know Him and walk with Him, the closer we draw to Him, that we just go, He's beautiful. And there's something wonderful there. And our deepest and truest longings find satisfaction and peace in Him. Solomon goes on. He says, I know, verse 14, that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before Him. And there's just this challenge here. We are to fear God. Why does God do what God does? Well, so that you might fear Him. That you might stand in reverence and awe of Him. And Solomon says, as we consider time, and we consider God's time, this is part of His purpose, that we would look at Him and that we would simply fear Him. Purpose in life is found in Him, not in how good we are or in what we know and understand. Solomon, he's accumulated all this knowledge, all this understanding. He's trying to get his mind around it. And he says, you know, all these things are great, but we need to fear God. And we need to understand and stand in awe of Him. And then this longer passage of Scripture, and I I want to take a few minutes to go through this tonight. It's more of a a Bible study type approach here. But it starts in really verse 16, and it goes all the way through chapter 4 at the very end. And, and, And he highlights these injustices in the world. He, he, he looks at, at life and he just says, you know, these things don't make sense when you consider the character and the virtue of God and who he is. And then you look at these things. It doesn't add up. It's unjust. It's not fair. And, and, I, and I'm going to give this challenge up front. He is challenging us with this simple thought that we are to keep our faith regardless of the contradictions that we see in life. Understanding that God is going to clear up all injustices in time. And so in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. Shocking. In the place of judgment, 
in the place where there should be justice, there's not any, right? Can we relate in some measure even today? Like we shouldn't be so surprised that in the place of justice, there might be corruption. It's always been that way. He says, here's this place. He said, wickedness was there, the place of righteousness. Even in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. He said, this isn't right. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. He's just saying there is corruption. There is wickedness in places that should be known for upholding justice. And he comes to this conclusion. God's going to fix it. Obviously, it's not in, in this time, but in his time. He's going to take care of that. That's a contradiction, but I can trust him. In verse 18, he says, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? What's he saying? People created in God's image, they die just like animals. And he says, that's not fair. That's unjust. That's not right. I want you to look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions and those that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than living, which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they, which hath not yet been, which, who hath not se yet seen the evil work that is done under the sun. What's he saying? He's saying there are oppressed in the world. There are people who are suffering. There are people in other places. They, ha they have no advantage. He goes, and no one's there to comfort them. No one's there to help them. No one's going to them. And he says, they're oppressed. And it's not fair. And he says, and it's not right. And it's, it's unjust. And in verse 4, he says, Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. And he says, Better is a handful of quietness than both the hands full of travail and vexation of spirit. What's he saying? Too many people, in fact, almost everybody, they are motivated by envy. It's not good and right that motivates them. It's the other person's doing better than me, and that's what motivates me. And Solomon looks at that and says, that's wicked, and it's not right, and it's what motivates the masses. It's unjust. In verse 7, look again, he says, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath, hath, hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is I satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good. This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for the labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that's alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. What's he saying here? He said, I'm looking at people, and he says, they're lonely. Like a lot of people in this world are lonely. We're living in a different time than Solomon, and nothing's changed. 
And he says, it's not fair. It's not right. Verse 13 through 16, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he becometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in them. Surely this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Man, he is, and again, he's, he's just saying, this is so vexing to me. And he is saying recognition for accomplishment, it's temporary. Like here's a guy and he gives his life to something and he works really hard and all, he, he, he might even get the proper and due recognition for his labor. And he says, and it only lasts a moment and then that moment is gone and what's he left with? And he says, that just irritates me and it frustrates me. These are contradictions. He says they're easy to use as an excuse for not believing in God. And the many, many people do. And Solomon is using them to show how we can look at life's problems and still keep our faith. Because a lot of people wrestle with these exact issues. They look at the oppressed. They look at, at, at the motivations of envy. They look at recognition and, and what's life really about. And, and, and they just fall apart. And Solomon says, hold on a second though. As light begins to shine through in his vexed mind, he says, you can't pass judgment on God for this simple reason. You don't have all the facts. Because it's his time. You have a limited mindset. You understand your time. But there are a lot of questions you don't know. And there are things you will never know. And they're past your understanding. God's plan is for us to live with Him forever. His plan is for us to live with not a temporary view in mind, but an eternal view in mind. And the contradictions you see and the things that might frustrate you now and the pain and hurt you experience will one day be cleared up and they will be made beautiful. He's in control of time and he takes the time he needs for the purpose of making things beautiful. The word beautiful here is the idea of good and pleasing and right. And there are moments and people and things in this life that God does make beautiful. But there are plenty of moments and people and things and circumstances in this life that are not beautiful. They are broken. They are ugly. There was no more beautiful person and again, I mean this in the context of good, pleasing, and right than Jesus Christ. No, more one, no more, one more good, no one more pleasing, no, more, no one more right. But even he had plenty of moments in a life that wasn't beautiful. And speaking of Jesus before he was born, the prophet Isaiah said, For he shall grow up before them as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wouldn't be the most popular person in the room. He would have been despised and rejected. He wouldn't have been one of the cool teenagers. He wouldn't have been wearing the name brand clothing, couldn't afford it. 
No one would have been around Jesus and desired him in that context. When things are not beautiful, right on the verge of the uh, end of this verse, verse 11, he says, He hath made beautiful, everything beautiful in his time. Very next phrase says, He hath set the world in their heart. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> like why, why that phrase following this idea of he's going to make everything beautiful in his time? Well, because the word world is the word olam, and it means this. Now, this is important. It means long duration, antiquity, futurity, forever and ever, everlasting, evermore, and perpetual. And the idea is simply this. God has created deep within the heart of his creation a certainty that life exists beyond the grave. It takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of willpower. It takes constant suppression of doubt that something big and significant isn't coming at the end of our lives and at the end of time. We were made, human beings were made for the idea of eternity. We were not made for just time. We were made as eternal beings and we will last forever. And the heart of the created being knows that deep down. Why is that important? Why the phrase, he has set the world in their heart, right, right after this? Because the most beautiful part of life and our existence is yet to come. It's in the future. God makes and he is going to make everything beautiful. He, he doesn't always make beautiful, things beautiful in our time. But there is this incredible promise that in his time, things are going to be made beautiful. One author said, if I find in myself a desire stirring in my heart, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I can't get happy here. Not fully satisfied. No, there's, there's something deep in my heart. And he, and he comes to this conclusion. You know, I probably wasn't made exclusively for this place. There's a, there's a longing and a satisfaction that is yet to come. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, because the real thing isn't here yet. What we're experiencing is a shadow of beautiful things yet to come. And one day we will know so much more. And one day our understanding will be so much greater and it will be beautiful. Everything about your future is beautiful. This author wrote in a novel, he said, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. You ever wondered that? Where did the beauty come from? I didn't find that place. The secret of the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. Where did all the beauty we see hints of come from? Well, it comes from a place, and it comes from a God who is nothing but beautiful. 
I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, in your Bibles tonight. We're going to close here. And the verses on the screen as well, if you don't have one. I think these verses are worth us looking at in print. Hebrews 11 gives all these examples of these incredible men that Scott sang about tonight. Pastor preached about this morning. These were some rugged people. Some rugged Christians. And in verse 13 says, these all died in faith. Now listen, not having received the promises. Most, if not all of us, are going to die in faith and we're not going to receive the promises. They're coming. But we don't have them yet. But this, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and they were pilgrims on the earth, not made for this world, passing through it. I've got something else I'm living for. I've got a bigger purpose and I embrace it. And they lived for that day, not advancing themselves in this life, but for the one to come. Verse 14, for they that say such things declare plainly, they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity of return. But then now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them city. Solomon says, you just wait. His ways are past our finding out. No man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. But he's preparing for you a city. And in his time, he's going to make everything beautiful and it's coming. But we need to know that we may not receive all the promises in this life. And we may see them afar off. And it's our responsibility and it's our choice to make whether or not to be persuaded of them. And whether or not you and I will embrace them, their promise is made. What are you going to do about it? See, just like those who have gone before us, we have to have the certainty in our hearts that while we may not have all the answers, God does. And one day he is going to take your hurt. And I was... uh, Scott was preaching or singing tonight, and this afternoon, Elizabeth has a Bible that I use at home and uh, has Ezekiel Myers' photo in it and David Elliott's. And then they're singing that song, and I was looking at Jerry Palmer. It's hurt. Hurt our church family. There's a lot of other hurt in here tonight, I know. But God's going to take that and our frustrations, and our deepest scars and pain, our disappointments, your broken body, he gonna make it beautiful. But he's gonna do it in his time. So stop taking what God isn't giving. His timing protects you. He is not withholding good from you. He just has his time. See, we get out of his time, we mess everything up. Just just mess it all up. 
We need to learn to align our life around God's agenda and stop taking our agenda and aligning God around it. We need to learn His purposes. We need to learn to fear Him. We need to find purpose in our work and understand what we do it for and align our work around God. We need to fear Him. We need to put Him first. We need to understand His agenda. We need to stop demanding and expecting a beautiful and perfect life outside of God's time. He makes everything beautiful, but He's going to do it in His time. And so let's align our lives around His time frame and not force Him into ours. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.